0: Thank you band for leading us this morning. Uh, We gather together because of that song we just sang. We gather together to express thanksgiving and gratitude to Jesus for who he is, for what he has done for us. Uh, And right now we're going to do that by opening up his word together by hearing from the Lord, by hearing Him speak into our hearts, into our lives, into our situations uh, with the truth of the gospel. So if you have a copy of the Bible, go ahead and join me this morning in Daniel chapter 8. If you don't know me, my name is DJ. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity. And here at Trinity, we love the Bible. We love hearing from God. And so we do a type of teaching called expository teaching, where we open up a book of the Bible most often, and we just work through it chapter by chapter, line by line. We want to hear what God has to say. And that endeavor has us in the middle, of the book of Daniel, and this morning in Daniel chapter 8. If you didn't get a listening guide on your way in, a little piece of paper that will have the text, place to take notes, just slip your hand up, Alex can make sure you get one of those uh, as you join us in Daniel. Daniel 8 is quite possibly one of the most obscure chapters in all the Bible. This is one of these series of visions that Daniel has. It continues on in much the same way as the vision he had. In chapter 7 that we studied over the last three weeks, this vision of, of animals and beasts that signify the outworking of history. But this vision is much more narrow in scope, much more focused. And it surrounds events that have actually already been fulfilled and events that were fulfilled outside of the scope of biblical history. These aren't prophecies about Jesus or anything that we have recorded for us in the Bible, but these events actually were fulfilled in the intertestamental period, that 400 years or so between the close of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. And so it's a text that's very easy to open up and to think, this has nothing to do with me. What am I supposed to get from this? Quite possibly one of the most obscure chapters in all of Scripture. Now, you might be thinking as I say that, wow, it's a good thing you're not in sales because that's really not what's going to get me interested in reading this text this morning. If it's so obscure, if it's so out there and already done and wrapped up, why should we care? Why should I care if it's not about me? Well, quite frankly, the whole Bible is not about you and it's not about me. And so as we open this and we see this vision that Daniel has, and we see the way it was fulfilled in the life of his people, we can gain great truth from it, just like we do from the stories of Moses or David or all these other figures in the Old Testament whose lives are already wrapped, whose stories are already gone, who have no direct connection it would seem to us, but whose stories are full of truth about who God is and what God does. And we're going to see that just as surely this morning. This text is full of rich and timely applications to the lives of every single one of us. And contrary to our misconceptions about prophecy, you don't need a PhD in biblical languages or world history to understand it. You don't have to be a rocket scientist. You don't have to have some special code to unlock the mysteries of this. You just simply need to come to the word and to be ready to hear what God says and be willing to do a little work and a little study. That's what we're going to do together this morning. Daniel is given a vision of a dark time that is going to come upon God's people. Quite possibly the darkest time they had ever experienced up until this point. But he's also told that that dark time has a definite and a a divine ending. And so as we see that, and as we reflect on this vision and how it was fulfilled in history, it's going to give us much to think about, much to reflect on, much to pray for, and much to put our hope in. So that's what makes this A vision worth studying. This is God's word to us. Dave read this morning in our scripture reading from 1 Timothy, or 2 Timothy 3. All scripture is breathed out by God. That includes Daniel 8. There's a lot for us to find here. So let's dig in, let's read through the chapter, and let's see how we get to know God better through this text this morning. Daniel 8, beginning in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him. And there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. And as I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west, across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him with his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns." And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great, even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him. And the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground. And it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For two thousand three hundred evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man, And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he'd spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of the four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise." "'His power shall be great, but not by his own power. "'And he shall cause fearful destruction "'and shall succeed in what he does "'and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. "'By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, "'and in his own mind he shall become great. "'Without warning he shall destroy many, "'and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes. "'And he shall be broken, but by no human hand. "'The vision of the evening and mornings has been told is true.' But seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business. But I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Will you pray with me? And we'll dive in and study this together this morning. Our God and Father, revealer of history, revealer of mysteries, giver of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask this morning as we come to this text that what we know not you will teach us, what we have not you will give us, what we are not you will make us. By the power of your spirit, through your word to the glory of your glorious name we pray in Christ's name, amen. All right, so our account today picks up in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar of Babylon. So let's place this in context with where we're at in Daniel. It's been two years since Daniel saw the vision that we studied over the last few weeks in chapter seven, two years since this vision of the four beasts and the ancient of days and the son of man. And it's still about 10 years before the events of the writing on the wall that we read back in chapter five. So Daniel seen his first vision, Belshazzar still on the throne, Babylon has not yet fallen. And so in year three of, of Belshazzar's reign, Daniel sees a second vision. Another vision of beasts, in some ways it's very similar to before. We have these beasts that represent kings and kingdoms, a picture of history marching forward, empires rising and empires falling. But there's a lot of differences as well as we look into his vision of history turning forward, a lot of differences in scope and in the general theme of what's going on here. First off, we see the differences right out of the gate, whereas his last vision took place by the great sea, this vague reference, if you remember Dave telling us that the great sea representative of the churning world of the history of mankind that is opposed to God. In this vision, Daniel is transported to a very specific place, right? Look at the first few verses. He was in Susa the Citadel, which is in the province of Elam at the bank of the Ulai Canal. Now these references likely don't mean much to us. I doubt anyone has ever vacationed on the banks of the Uli Canal or has ever visited or even seen or knows where that place is. But it's a place that would have been familiar to Daniel. It would have been a relevant reference. This is in the eastern part of the Babylonian Empire. Not a very significant place in the grand scheme of Babylon. Daniel didn't live there. It's about uh, several hundred miles east of where he would have lived in the capital city. Really, we're talking about present-day Iran is where he sees this vision, where he's transported to in this vision. But it would be very important in the history of Babylon because when the Persians and the Medes come in and overthrow the kingdom, this is what they will set up as their capital. This is the capital of the Medes and the Persians that will be established when they overthrow Babylon. And so on the banks of this canal, at this place where this future will unfold, Daniel sees a vision of a ram. The ram has two horns. One is slightly larger than the other and also appears a little later than the other. And this ram is charging all around, east, west, south, and no one is able to withstand him. No one is able to overthrow or resist him. And so we ask What does this ram represent? And thankfully in Daniel 8, we get a lot of uh, of help because the, the vision interprets itself. The Lord gives Daniel some very specific interpretation of some of the things he sees. And so down in verse 15, God tells him that this ram represents a kingdom that is coming, the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. But even before we get into that, it's important to note what else we find down in verse 15. And that is that this vision concerns the time of the end. So we need to understand what it is he's talking about here because when we see this concerns the time of the end, our minds instantly go to the end of the end, right? To the second coming of Jesus where he will come and restore the kingdom and bring restoration to all things, offer in the eternal state. But we don't want to jump to that conclusion. That is not necessarily what is being talked about here. The question that we should ask when we see the time of the end is the end of What? And this text actually tells us right here in verses 15 and 16, and um, actually in verses 18 and 19, Daniel falls in a deep sleep, and he is told to stand up, and a voice says, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. So we're told that this vision is about the end of the indignation, the end of a period of great suffering and distress that is going to come upon God's people. Not necessarily the end of the world, because as we're going to see, this has already been fulfilled. But this is concerning the end of this indignation, this time of great darkness that is coming upon the people of Israel. And in verse 20, we're told then that the ram represents the kings of Media and Persia. So this is the empire that's going to overthrow Babylon, this is the empire that Daniel is going to live and serve the kings of in, uh, in the latter half of the book. When we read the story of Daniel in the lion's den, that is after the Medes and Persians have come in and taken over. So this is going to impact Daniel's life in the very near future. We're told the ram's horns represent both pieces of that empire, the Medes and the Persians. The Persian horn pops up a little later, but it's also greater as they were the dominant members of that alliance. And they eclipse the Medes. And this empire is going to overthrow Babylon. It's going to take her place on the world stage. And it's going to be this terrifying force that no one can stand against. And we see that in the ram, charging this way and that. And no one is able to withstand it, at least until someone did withstand it, right? In the providence of God, another beast appears. Here we see a goat. And this goat is kind of a strange goat. You might have seen goats before. I guarantee you haven't seen one like this. Because this goat moves along the ground without touching it. We have a hovering goat And he has a conspicuous horn right between his eyes. And he shows up and he charges the ram and he utterly destroys him. Just as the nations were powerless before the ram, so the ram is powerless before the goat. Again, think back to Daniel 7. Empires rise, empires fall. God is sovereign over all of them as history continues to turn forward. And this great goat who wipes out the ram, right as he's at the peak of his power, as he becomes great, his horn is broken. And it's replaced by four smaller horns that pop up facing the four winds of heaven. This is the four cardinal directions, if you will, north, south, east, and west. verse 21 gives us some information about this goat. What does he represent? He represents, verse 21, the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. Now, history makes very clear to us who this first king is. This is Alexander the Great, this king of Greece who arises, uh, a renowned figure that I'm sure you studied in history and forgot or were sleeping through. But Alexander conquered the entire known world and had himself an empire that stretched from Italy to India by the time he was 33 years old. One of the greatest generals, one of the greatest rulers in history up until that point. But at the height of his power, Alexander died, and his kingdom was divided among his four chief generals, and they ruled over these four mini-empires that came from his great empire. Now it's worth mentioning here something we mentioned way back in the introduction to this book. This chapter is one of those things in Daniel that people who don't believe the Bible, who don't believe in a God who predicts the future, this chapter is one of the main reasons that they say this has to have been written after these things happened. It has to have been written in the 2nd century BC, not in the 5th century BC, because it's too good. It predicts history so well that it's just not possible for someone to have, have written this vision out like this. And so even though, as we talked about in the intro, there's a lot of problems with trying to date Daniel there, whether they be historical, grammatical, cultural, it's easier for them to believe that someone wrote this after the fact and made it prophecy than it is for them to believe in a God who actually orders history. But that's the God we know, and that's the God that we serve. And that reminds us of the great truth that this text gives us, and it reinforces a theme that's run throughout the book. While the empires and the powers of this world might seem invincible and while they might seem eternal, they are merely players on the stage of history that God is writing. Right? We have hit this over and over and over. Think back to the vision in chapter two of the statue and the rock that crumbled it. Think back to the vision last week of the beast and the fact that God basically snaps his fingers and they're gone. Think of all of the stories that we've read of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego standing before this proud king, Nebuchadnezzar, and God delivering them from his hand. Think about Nebuchadnezzar's own life story of falling into madness until he learned that God is God and he is not. Think about Daniel in the lion's den, where he stands up to this king and to his conspirators and is delivered from the mouths of the lions. All throughout Daniel, the main point has been God is God. He rules over history, and that's the main point of these first few verses in this vision. Along comes the ram, the ram is made great until he's not. Along comes the goat, the goat is made great, and he overthrows the ram. God is the one who orders history. and That's important for us to remember when history can seem quite chaotic all around us. God rules over the nations. We need to think about this not just in terms of way back history, but in our own time, in our own place. Because the Roman Empire once seemed impenetrable. The British Empire once seemed like it would cover the earth throughout human history. And today, our own nation, America, seems like a strong tower. It seems unfathomable that America could ever cease to be what she is. And yet God could snuff us out in an evening if he so chooses. If the United States fell off the map today, It would not be the most shocking thing in human history. It might not even crack the top five. God lifts up and God breaks down. And so we have got to get away from a place where we're trusting the here and now, human rulers, human authorities that may seem great, that may seem powerful, that may seem like they're our ticket to a better life. And we need to be trusting in the Lord instead. Psalm 118 Verses 8 and 9 says, It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. And Psalm 146, 3 and 4, Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Daniel's whole life was caught up in the machination of kings and empires. The Lord says, don't put your stock in them because I raise up and I put down. And he says the same thing to us today. Don't worry about what the world around you is doing. You put your trust in the Lord. Now that's easy enough to comprehend and to get from like a 30,000 foot view, but what does it look like to actually put this in practice day by day in practical life? What does it look like in the different realms in which you live to believe God is God and he rules over the nations? Well, in the political realm, it means that when your president tells you that everything you have could be lost in one election, you're not afraid. And you say to him, with all due respect, Mr. President, what we have can never be lost in an election. It does not come from you or from senators or from congressmen or from judges. God is God and he rules over our nation. In the financial realm, it means your anxiety level is not inversely proportional to the amount of money in your bank account, right? Money goes up, anxiety goes down. Money goes down, anxiety goes up. Because God is God of your bank account. God is the one who clothes the flowers in the field, who gives food to the sparrows and cares for you and promises to care for you. This is a tough one for me. This is one where I get churned up a lot. But if I grasp this truth, it changes the way I approach my money and my resources in the professional realm it means your sense of identity and worth is not altered by the title that's on your email signature it doesn't matter if you're ceo or if you sweep the floors you understand that god gives you worth god has given you the strength to work to make income he's the one that sustains you and he has placed you where he's placed you for a very specific purpose In the physical realm, it means you don't fret about the 319 horrible diseases or ailments you could end up with if you don't live just right, eat just the right combination of foods, miss a day at the gym. You know that God is God over your life, that he is the one who holds your breath in the palm of his hand. Remember back, why don't we trust in princes? Because when the prince's breath departs, he returns to the earth, and on that very day, his plans perish. Right? Try to keep yourself alive today. If you succeed, it won't be because you succeeded. It will be because God sustained you. He is the one that gives you breath. In the social realm, it means that your sense of value isn't dictated by how full your calendar is. God is on his throne. It's not dictated by how many parties you're invited to, your worth is not dictated by whether you're married or single. Because God has called you friend. God has called you his child. He has invited you into his family. And that is the relationship that will ultimately sustain you, whether your other ones are great or whether they're poor. If we understand that God is God, that he rules over the nations, it means he also rules over my life, my money, my finances, my government, my social life, my future. You get the idea. This point has only been made about 500 times over the course of the book of Daniel. And we're going to make it a few more as we go through the rest of the book. God is on his throne. He can be trusted with the grand scale of history. And I think we all have that part down. But he can also be trusted with the tiny, seemingly insignificant scale of your history, of your present, and of your future. And that is a truth that is especially important to remember. When another truth from this vision comes knocking at your door. And that is this, that suffering will come to God's people. Suffering comes to God's people. Sometimes extraordinary suffering. And that's where the vision goes from here. Verse 9. We're told that one of these four replacement horns comes with another little horn which expanded its reach to the south and to the east towards Israel. Right Out of one of them came a little horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. The glorious land being the people of Israel, the land of Israel, Jerusalem. And we're told that not only does this horn become great in earthly terms, but with apocalyptic language, we're told that it grew great and it sought to rival the very hosts of heaven. This king doesn't simply have men in his sights, he has God in his sight. He seeks to throw down God. And he actually succeeds. That's the shocking bit, or so it would seem. Right? Verse 10, it grew great even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars, it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. This is a reference to God, the prince of the host. This horn becomes so great That in the terms of this vision, it becomes every bit as great at God. He seeks to supplant God. He will take the temple and sacrifices away from God. Right? Verse 12, and a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground and it will act and prosper. He will take the temple and sacrifices away. He will throw truth to the ground. He will prosper. This is a shocking statement, a shocking vision. We can see that why by the end of this that Daniel is sick, physically ill, and has trouble going about his day-to-day life. Because what's being told here? I mean, imagine this. Like Israel has faced problems before. I mean, that's implicit in the fact that Daniel right now lives not in Jerusalem but in a foreign country that conquered them. But we're talking about somebody setting himself up to challenge Yahweh himself and actually having success. Verse 23 tells us that this horn represents a king who will come at the latter end of the kingdom of Greece. Uh, At that latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face and one who understands riddles shall arise. And he will have great power. But again, note, not by his own power. He will destroy many, he shall even rise up against the prince of princes himself. Now, we don't have to wonder what this dark time would look like because this has actually already come to pass. And it's a piece of history that maybe you're familiar with, but I'm going to bet that most of us probably are not. Because again, this was fulfilled in what we call the intertestamental period, the time between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. During that time, after the splintering of Alexander the Great's kingdom, there arose a king in one of the splinter kingdoms of Greece, the Seleucid kingdom, and his name was Antiochus. Antiochus IV, to be exact. And he was indeed a king of bold face. He starts amassing quite an empire, quite a following. He gave himself the nickname Epiphanes, which means the manifest God. That counts as bold, I would say. He says, I am God made flesh, God manifest. He printed that on his currency. If you uncover a coin from that time in the empire, it would have him as Antiochus Epiphanes. And he sought to unite his empire under the banner of Greek culture and Greek religion, right? If everybody shares the same culture, if everybody shares the same uh, religion, the same same traditions, then it will be easy to keep everyone united and on the same page, and my kingdom will prosper. And he stomped out any holdouts to that vision brutally. He rolls into Jerusalem, and in the year 167 B.C., He sets up a statue sacred to Zeus in the holy of holies of the temple. And he orders the people to sacrifice pigs to his God. If you know anything about Jewish religion, about the Old Testament, swine are an unclean animal, right? They weren't used for food. They weren't kept by Jewish people. They were outside of the law of Moses. This is a deliberate act of desecration that he has the people to do to to give their loyalty, not to Yahweh, but to him, to his gods, to his authority. Anyone who refused to worship in this way was put to death. Anyone who was found in possession of a scroll with a piece of the Old Testament was put to death. Anyone who practiced or observed the law of Moses in any way was put to death. His aim was to completely eradicate the worship of God and prop himself and his gods up in his place. Some writings indicate he killed about 80,000 people in Israel. And even if that's a symbolic number, as some historians believe it to be, it's symbolic of something horrific. This is a dark day of suffering that has come upon God's people. This kind of suffering came like a lot of other times, when the transgressors have reached their limit right? We, that's referenced in the vision and in the interpretation. It's the cycle that we see throughout the history of Israel. The people turn their back on God, they rebel, God brings judgment and suffering into their lives to call them back to him. And very often in our life, sin and transgression can lead us to a place that we don't want to go. But whether you are actually one of those transgressors or whether you are one who lived in Israel who was faithful to God, Suffering has come into their lives here in the second century before Jesus arrives. Dark days are here. So what are we to learn from this? Well, first up, and most basically, most fundamentally, we need to remember that suffering, even extreme suffering, is not something that will be foreign to God's people. The fact that you follow Jesus, that you're faithful to the Lord, does not mean life is going to be a bed of roses. Right, we reject the prosperity gospel here at Trinity Church, prosperity gospel that says that if you have enough faith, if you're following God rightly, you will be healthy, you will have wealth, you will prosper in everything that you do. And it's not that we aren't fans of that idea, we would certainly love it if that were true. We are against it because the Bible doesn't promise that. The Bible says that suffering will be a part of what we experience in this life. God tells us to expect trouble if we're following him to expect it why would he tell us that he tells us that because he wants us to prepare for what we will face in this life he's not trying to hide like god isn't giving the slick sales job up front come follow me it's going to be fantastic and then we get in and we're like whoa i didn't sign up for this he tells us at the outset and he wants us to be prepared to hold fast in the face of trial and temptation. That's ultimately why this passage exists. Because the people of Israel are going to face a very dark day, and they need to have hope that God has not abandoned them. They need to have hope to hold fast in circumstances that seem to squeeze the life out of them and know that their God is still God. Just as certainly as he was God over the empires, so he will be God over their dark days of suffering. And this pattern of warning as preparation continues in the New Testament as well, right? We get this same kind of talk from Jesus himself. John 16, he says this to the disciples. This is uh, leading up to his crucifixion as he's gathered together with them, going to the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing that great trouble is about to come upon him and upon them. John 16, 1, he says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when what sorry. And I have said these things to you that when their hour comes you may remember that I told them to you. I have said these things to you so that when their hour comes, when the days get dark, you will remember it's not an accident. I am still in charge. I am still with you. 1 Peter 4, 12 through 13, brothers, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you also may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Don't be surprised when suffering comes, as if it were something strange. Jesus told us to expect this. In fact, when you suffer, when you share in the sufferings of Jesus, you can rejoice. Why? Because it's a a promise that just as you share in his sufferings, so you will share in his glory. When his kingdom comes and all things are put right, you will dwell with him forever. So the message in the case of John 16 and of 1 Peter 4 is this. Hold fast. Know that this is coming. This will not be the end of you though. God is doing something bigger than those circumstances and he will, pursue, he will persevere you through those circumstances. Right? God is accomplishing something greater in our dark days. He's not left us hanging. He's not asleep at the wheel, but he is still at work. This is why it's important for us to remember that God is absolutely sovereign over our suffering. Right, verse 24 tells us that Antiochus' power will be great, but not of his own doing. Right, even in this darkest day, God is telling them that this one who is coming against you will seem invincible, but he's only where he is because God has allowed him to be there. He has no power or authority beyond what God allows. Are you suffering today? Could be physical, could be emotional, could be a broken relationship, could be any number of things. Your suffering has not caught God by surprise. It hasn't. Just as surely as the people who would suffer under Antiochus' rule, or Joseph suffering when he was sold into slavery in Egypt, or Jesus himself being betrayed, brutalized, and killed, God is fully God over the circumstances that you endure. And he promises to use it all for the good of his people. right? That's the promise of Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, 28 is a verse that's probably very, very familiar to many of us. But it's really helpful with that verse to back out for a second and read it in the greater context of what's going on there. Romans 8, beginning in verse 26, says this. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. You ever been in a, in a situation like that, where you don't know what to pray? Where you know that you're falling on your face in need of God's help, and, and you don't even know how to get the words out? The promise is that the God's Spirit dwells within you and intercedes before God, on your behalf, with something more powerful than even your words. And it's in that context that we get verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. When we are going through suffering, when we can't see the light at the end of the tunnel, we can trust that God is with us, that His Spirit intercedes for us, and that He has our good in mind. But that good might not look like what you think it's going to look like. Because right after verse 28 comes verse 29. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now what do we get from the context of that verse? We learn that when suffering comes into your life, you can rest assured that God's love for you is unchanged. He's still present. He's still God. He's still there. What do you have as assurance of that? Well, his spirit is with you and intercedes on your behalf. He promises to use whatever you go through for good, to accomplish his ultimate purpose for your life. What is God's ultimate purpose for your life? To make you like Jesus. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined for what? To be conformed to the image of his son. And those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. Your life is part of a progression where God is making you more like Jesus so that you can dwell with him forever. That is the point of your life. And that is how suffering, even when you can find no good reason for it to exist in this life, you can trust that God has purpose because he can use it to make you more like his son. God's people will go through suffering. You will go through suffering. Maybe today, maybe tomorrow, maybe 10 years from now. But it does not mean God has abandoned you. It does not mean he's asleep at the wheel. He has purpose in and through it. And he will deliver and restore you from it. Ultimately, that's the truth that comes at the end in verse 13 and 14, 26 and 27. God gives this word to his people so that they will hold fast through dark days. But he also tells them how the story is going to end. Right? Remember back when we started, this was about the time of the end, the end of the indignation. This is a vision not just of the indignation that is coming, but of how God will put it down of how he will deliver his people out of the hand of this mad king, Antiochus Epiphanes. As Daniel watches the vision, an angel cries out, up in verse 13, and asks, how long will this last? How long will the desolation and desecration go on? And an answer comes in verse 14, And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. And the interpretation further backs this up, down in verse 26. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true. God will deliver. Antiochus will be broken, verse 25, but by no human hand. God will intervene because he is the Lord of history, just as he's the Lord of the Medes and the Persians, and he was the Lord of the Greeks, so he will be the Lord of this so-called manifest God. Antiochus will find out who is truly God as he comes to the end of his life. So what are we to make of this? Well, history tells us. Near the end of his reign, Antiochus led an an expedition eastward to expand his kingdom toward what is today modern-day Iran. And he never came home from it. Not because he died in battle, not because he was assassinated by a political rival, but because he fell victim to a sudden disorder of his nervous system that incapacitated him and quickly took his life. He was broken by no human hand. God struck him down. And what are we to make of the 2,300 evenings and mornings? Well, there's a couple of things. We could take them as 2,300 days. That would work out to about seven years. The trouble there is, if you look at the story of Antiochus and the the rebellion that, that came about to deliver the people of Israel from him, right? there was a revolt from a group called the Maccabees, and they were able to drive out Antiochus' armies and restore the temple and cleanse the temple, restore it back to proper worship of God. But that seven years doesn't really fit any of the events that we know from history that happened there. The other possibility is that the evening and morning language could be a reference to 2,300 sacrifices. Sacrifices were conducted in the evening and the morning each day in temple worship. And that fits contextually because what's the the context here? We're talking about the temple. We're talking about the temple being overrun and cast down and desecrated. So if you take that as half of 2,300, that would be a little over three years, 1,150 days. And history notes that Antiochus set up his pagan altar on the 25th day of the month of Kislev in the year 168 B.C. After the Maccabean rebellion that drove him out, the temple was reconsecrated in 165 B.C., roughly 1,150 days later. God is God. He delivers his people. His promises are true. This rededication of the temple is still celebrated today as the festival of lights, which you probably know as Hanukkah, the time when the temple was rededicated, a festival that Jesus would have celebrated as he grew and as he walked the earth, a a time of remembering that what God promised in Daniel 8 came true. People of Israel went through dark days, but God delivered, God saved God punishes wrongdoing God always keeps his promises evil will never go unpunished even if it seems like it very often from a human perspective right God always delivers the people of Israel needed this hope to endure the suffering that was headed that way their way but what about us What do we take from this promise? How does the truth that God will always deliver, that he will always redeem, that he will always restore, how does that affect you and I today, tomorrow, as we go through our week? Well, again, I ask the question, are you suffering? Are you facing a situation that seems to have no answer and no relief in sight? God hears. God knows. And God will deliver you. He will deliver you. Now, that deliverance might not look like you think it should. It might not look like what you have in your mind. It might not be something you ever even fully taste in this life. After all, there were many Jews that died under Antiochus' reign of terror before the promised deliverance came. Was the promise of deliverance then null and void to them? Were God's promises of deliverance not true for them? No, because God is doing something with us that is larger than this life. He has a purpose that does not end with your death. He is molding you into the image of his son that you might not only dwell with him forever, but rule and reign with him forever. The God who is sovereign over history is inviting us as joint heirs with Jesus Christ to participate in his eternal and everlasting government. To stand all the benefits that Jesus has, we will enjoy because he shares them freely with us as brothers and sisters. And so when you think that God's deliverance is late to show up, when you think that the promise is not true, remember that he is working everything perfectly in order to conform you to the image of Christ. God's deliverance is sure. And for the, of the Lord of the Rings fans out there, it's a lot like Gandalf, right? He's never late, nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to. Even if to us, it might seem like, God, where are you at? I need your help. Why am I praying this prayer? How long, O Lord, till you intervene? God's purpose always is fulfilled. He always redeems, he always restores, and he will always use everything that enters your life for your good and his glory as he makes you more like Jesus. Remember what we read from John 16, from 1 Peter 4? His ultimate purpose is to make you like him and for you to dwell with him forever. So when you go through suffering, When you go through suffering, remember that this is just a snapshot. It is not the culmination of the story. Deliverance is as sure as the dawn. It's so easy, it's such a temptation when we suffer to get blinders on, to think very, very narrowly in terms of what I'm experiencing and feeling right now. God has not painted us as still images but we are being molded, shaped, made to look more like Christ, and we have a destiny with him that is beyond imagination. Author N.D. Wilson, reflecting on this reality, says this. He says, I am more than a painting, because I do not sit in time. As a painting, I am a failed portrait of God. But this is no frozen frame. He hasn't finished, and he never will. He cannot fall short because he will never stop his mouth from speaking. God is conforming you to the image of Christ in a process that will go on forever and forever. Even when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we'll have no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. And you will continue to grow and to know and to rejoice in God more and more and more, even on the other side of eternity. I think we have this conception a lot of times that once we get to heaven, everything is going to be all that it ever is. You're not going to know everything, right? Because you're not God. You will never be omniscient like he is, but we will have eternity to spend every single day with him, growing in our knowledge and love and appreciation of him and never exhausting the end of that cycle. Let your brain chomp on that one for a minute and then fall over dead. God is going to do something throughout eternity. Where we will dwell with him forever, knowing, tasting his work in our lives as it grows and grows day after day after day. But the promise that God will set all things right is not just a hope, it's also a warning. Since the beginning, the lie that has accompanied temptation has always been God's not really gonna judge, right? Did God really say, die? like, he didn't mean die? die, it's not going to be so bad. In fact, it's going to be great. And that lie was bought by our first parents, and that lie continues to get bought by people day after day after day. Antiochus believed himself invincible, right? The manifest God, the one who challenges the stars of heaven and tramples them underfoot. He believed himself divine, not under the authority of Yahweh, but actually his superior We are all tempted to believe that same thing. Now, you might not ever call yourself the manifest God. But when you sin, when you reject what God has said and you follow your own path, the truth that is implicit in that is you are saying, I know you said this, but I know better. And I'm going to go this way. I set myself up as my authority and not God. That never ends well because judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. God cannot and will not allow sin to go unpunished. If you ever doubt that, look at the cross, right? If sin is so grievous, so serious that God had to do that to his son to bring us into his family, how can we think that he doesn't take sin seriously? How can we think that judgment is not coming? And so when you hear this truth about God's deliverance being sure, which side are you on? Are you living with your hope in his future? Or are you living as your own king, as your own authority, as your own God? You cannot yearn to be delivered as God's child while setting your mind to live your life against him as his enemy. It doesn't work. No one can serve two masters. That's not to say that as Christians we never sin, we never do what is contrary to what God says. But the Bible does tell us that when we are following Christ, there is a transformation that happens. We come to serve a new master. We don't keep on in our old ways deliberately chasing after the things that we once did. Because judgment is coming. Judgment and deliverance are two sides of the same coin. The people of Israel were delivered. Antiochus was crushed under the weight of God's righteous hand. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this vision? What kind of questions do we ask ourselves after we look at this text, at this piece of history that maybe you've never considered before? Well, first, do you believe that God holds the future? No, no, really. Do you believe that God holds the future? Not just 10,000 years from now, but tomorrow. That whatever comes into your life this week is not an accident. What part of your life needs to grasp that truth the most? We talked earlier about the political realm, the financial realm, the social realm, the physical realm. In what area of life do you have the hardest time believing that God is God and that he is on the throne? And what are some concrete ways that you can strive to grow in that area this week? We mentioned the political realm earlier on. Maybe you think, you know, I, have a, I watch the news and I get all spun up and I have a hard time believing that God can really be God over all of this. I challenge you this week, shut the news off. Take a one-week fast from Fox News or CNN or MSNBC or whatever blog or website you like to read and take that time that you would usually spend watching the news and spend it in the Word. Reread Daniel. Be reminded of his sovereignty over these kings that seemed every bit as imposing as our kings and senators and elites today. And see if your perspective doesn't change by the end of the week. How do you approach suffering? Are you surprised when it comes upon you? Unsure of how to deal with it as if it were something strange? Or are you preparing your heart today to hold fast knowing that suffering will come? Knowing that it's part and parcel with following Jesus Christ. What practices and habits today will prepare you for the suffering of tomorrow? I promise you, it's not rocket science. Like we were joking in community group on Thursday night read the Bible, pray, be in community with God's people. All these basics, that's how you steel yourself against suffering. There's, there's no magic pill. There's no magic bullet. There's no secret that I can sit here and tell you, all right, here's the super spiritual wisdom that you've got to have. No. God says you need faith like a child. You need to know that he is God. And we know that by, by encountering him in his word, by humbling ourselves before him in prayer, by being around his people where somebody who's not in the pit of suffering like I am can speak into my life and say, remember, it's going to be Okay. Not because it's going to work out perfectly in this life the way you want, but because God is still God and He cares for you and you have an eternal destiny with Him. And so hold fast. Don't fall away. Know that He is your hope. He is your future. But is He your hope? Have you placed your hope in the deliverance brought about by Jesus Christ? We're not sitting here waiting for this promise to come true in our lives like the people of Israel would. The application for us is not that Antiochus is coming. But all of us are under a reign of terror from our adversaries in this life, in this world. Ourselves, our flesh, the devil, the burden of sin that hangs over us. But God has brought deliverance into the world by His Son, Jesus came and he drank the cup of God's wrath dry for us. That's why we're here, to thank him, to praise him for that. Have you put your focus on him? Is he your hope? Or are you living as if there will be no day of reckoning at all? Whether explicitly or implicitly, are you acting like Antiochus? Doing what you want, when you want, thinking you could challenge even the host of heaven. Thinking yourself invincible thinking your life eternal. Remember, deliverance and destruction are two sides of the same coin. How will you respond to the deliverance that God has held out through Christ? If You've never embraced him before. If you've never put your hope and your trust in him, today can be that day. All you need is childlike faith. Trust that he is who he says he is, that he's accomplished what he said he would accomplish, that he came, he lived, he died, he rose from the dead to secure your hope and future. Trust him and he will welcome you into his family. If you've got questions about that, if you've got doubts about that, if you've got something that you say, I want to believe but I just, I can't. Let's have a conversation. Let's get a cup of coffee. Talk to me. Talk to one of the other pastors. Talk to a community group leader. Talk to one of your friends. And let's talk about what does it mean to walk in faith day by day. But for those of you who are trusting in Christ, is he your hope day by day? We talked about how it's easier to think about God's control of history when we think about it from the 30,000-foot view than when we get down into the specifics and the nitty-gritty of everyday life. The same is true of our hope in Christ. Right? It's easy to say, my hope is in Christ for my eternal future. Is your hope in Christ tomorrow? Do you know that you have what you need because Jesus is Lord when you get up and go to work? When you face that individual that you just cannot stand to have to run into every Monday. When you face the trial that's come upon you, whether physical or financial or whatever the case may be, is your hope in Christ and is that enough to propel you forward, to help you to hold fast through whatever life brings your way? Our God holds the future. Suffering and darkness will come into the life of the Christian, but our God always delivers. He always redeems. He always restores. May we find our hope in him over the week to come, and let's encourage one another as we walk through this week to remember that great hope. Pray with me. God and Father, You rule over the nations, and you rule over my tomorrow. Remind me of that. Remind us of that. God, as our lives are full of cares, full of concerns, full of worries, full of anxieties, full of fears, God, may we learn that you are the answer to them all, that you will quiet them when we fix our eyes on you, when we see that you are Lord. Father, help us this week to follow after Jesus, to trust in him moment by moment, day by day. Help us to walk with one another through the difficulties, through the hardships, to rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, to pray for one another, to humble ourselves before you. God, we need this truth. people of Israel needed this truth to get through dark days. We need this truth to get through dark days. We need to be reminded of who you are, of what you have done and what you are still doing in us. God, I pray that you would grant us faith, that we would see rightly, that we would believe what's true and that we would order our life because of it. And Father, where we are weak, where we fail, where we struggle, may you fill us with the power of your Spirit. May you grow us. May you remind us that you foreknew us. You predestined us to be conformed to the image of your Son. And those whom you predestined, you called. And those you called, you justified. And those you justified, you will glorify. Remind us that you have brought us safe thus far and you will lead us safely home by grace. Strengthen us to that end. And God, may you knit this church, these people, into a family that walks together with this hope, with this promise at the forefront of all that we do. God, be glorified in and through us today, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.